All right, let's begin. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word, that your will and, and character is not hidden from us, but we can hear your voice speaking. And as we study this difficult subject, we pray for the Holy Spirit, we pray for open hearts, and um, I pray that whatever I say that is true to your word, um, let that resound and, and be remembered, and whatever errors that I introduce, I pray that these things will be forgotten. pray all these in, your, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going through the um, Sunday School series, 66 books. Um, my intention was to do it in 10 weeks or in 10 lessons, but uh, I, uh, I eventually gave that up. Um, but we should be going at a pace of about 4.5 books per, 4.3 books I think it was, per week. Um, today we're going to really egregiously break that rule. We're going to just do a single book. Um, how do I do this? Okay. Um, today we're going to really break that rule because, and we're just going to uh, look at Paul's letter to Philemon, which is, um, if you look at the organization of the New Testament, they um, they uh, group all the, the letters or all the books by author. And so um, Philemon, even though it's really short, it's right before Hebrews because it's the last of Paul's letters that they, that they it's included. Um, it's not the last one he wrote, but it's the shortest of his letters. Um, even though it's very short, a single chapter, it's enormously important, I think, vital to helping us understand the issue of slavery because Paul writes the letter to a Christian slave owner concerning his runaway slave. So this is the um, sort of only really direct, lengthy um Writings that Paul gives us, or the Bible gives us, addressing this specific issue. So, um, I think this is the open door to talk about the problem of the Bible and slavery. And uh, this is the source of a lot of modern critiques and skepticism, uh, particularly focusing on the moral authority, doubting the moral authority of the Bible. It used to be the case several uh, decades ago that when people expressed um, skepticism about Christianity, it focused on the supernatural elements of Christianity, the miracles and so forth. Uh, but now, the modern critique, the reason why people are skeptical of Christianity has to do with the morality of Christianity. The ethical teachings of the Bible, it's considered to be backwards and outdated and repressive, particularly on the issue of slavery. Um, so let me just sort of outline for you two of the arguments. Number one, um, the argument is that the Bible supports slavery. Um, the Old Testament contains numerous passages that permit slavery. The New Testament commands slaves multiple times to submit to their slave masters. And nowhere in the Bible does it advocate the abolition of the institution of slavery. And therefore, the Bible approves of slavery, or at the very least tolerates it. And we know, as modern people, that slavery is one of the worst heinous evils ever perpetuated in human history, <clears throat> and therefore the fact that the Bible 
countenances it, condones it, shows you that the Bible is a morally corrupt book reflecting the mores of the ancient world. So that's the first argument. The second argument is trajectory hermeneutics, or the second issue I think that um, I want to address Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. And so um, trajectory hermeneutics basically says this, that um, the Bible's ethical teachings is always situated in its culture and in its time so that whatever was the, the culture of, the original culture in which the Bible was writing, the Bible tries to elevate and, and, and bring a higher ethical standard. But, through the course of human history, as society advances and progresses, it's showing us that the Bible is not the final word, but that there is an ultimate ethical standard. That the Bible is pointing at or, tra- or is, is leading in the trajectory of. And so that you, show, that you can see this, uh, the most prominent book on this is by Bill Webb. Slavery, women, and homosexuality. Um, he looks at those three issues based on what's called trajectory hermeneutics. The Bible, looking at slavery, was very much bound in the culture and time in which it was written, um, in which slavery was prolific. The Bible does try to soften it and mitigate it, but ultimately it had to stay tethered to the culture, and so it permitted slavery. But now we know, 150 years ago, the society says slavery is wrong. And so we don't stay with the biblical standard anymore. We move on to a higher ethical standard. And so our moral standards shouldn't be bound by the Bible. And you can apply that same hermeneutic to um, uh, gender roles. A hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, uh, women were inferior to men. But now we know as a society, women and men have equal dignity, equal value. And therefore the gender roles in the Bible, again, elevating the role of uh, status of women, but then uh, reflects is bound by that culture, and you could do the same kind of analysis with homosexuality. The Bible contains strong language contain, uh, condemning homosexuality. It's fairly unambiguous. Um, but then, using trajectory hermeneutics, we could realize it's pointing us in a direction, and as society progresses, we can, we can jettison biblical ethics. So both of these arguments profoundly undermine the moral authority of Scripture. And I think this is one of the, the, the main, the leading arguments for why people reject Christianity. Christianity has an outdated morality. So I want us to think about this very, very deeply. Um, I think this is a, an important question. And my goal today is to show you the moral beauty of Scripture um, on slavery. I want to show you that the Bible has a transcendent morality. So this paradigm is wrong. This paradigm right here is correct which is that the Bible has definitely a higher standard of ethical living than the culture, but the Bible is the final word. And it articulates the perfect uh, morality of God's character. And therefore, it critiques and it uh, rebukes every culture, every time, including our own. Um, any questions now about these sort of two modern critiques before we move on? All right. Yes. I fear that somebody's going to take notes and copy the exact words by this slavery. Right. 
But everyone in this room has a handout, so I think that'll be okay. <laughs> um, have we run out of handouts? If, if you're sitting with somebody, can you, can, can you share your handout? Okay. Um, all right, so I think part of the problem with this whole discussion is that when we think of slavery, we're thinking of slavery as we learned it in our history classes that was practiced in the American South, which was part of the larger Atlantic slave system. Um, the United States, uh, the, it's called the transatlantic slave uh, trade. The United States actually only received 5% of, those, uh, of that trade, but mainly because the United States had a relatively more humane practice of slavery than what was done in, in Brazil and in the Caribbean islands. Slaves there often died after a few short years because the conditions were so horrific. Um, women, if they could bear children, they would, the children would die very early on. So as horrific as the American system was, it just shows you how horrible, truly horrible it was in Brazil and in the Caribbeans. Um, this is the slavery that uh, we witnessed in the 1600s to the 1800s. And it is the most heinous, brutalizing system of slavery in world history. And you need to know that we're thinking of that, but that is sort of an ahistorical analysis because you have to think of slavery as it was practiced in the ancient world, the time of the Bible, which was significantly different. That doesn't completely absolve the Bible of the moral problem of slavery, but it does put it in context so that we're not comparing apples and apples, we're comparing apples and oranges. So just a few discontinuities. Number one, the Atlantic slave system was based entirely on race. Slavery was restricted to black Africans. White people could not be slaves. And this was just simply not true in the ancient world. Slavery was not based on race or ethnicity. Anyone could become a slave. It was based on two factors, warfare, uh, uh, war captives, and then debt slavery. We'll talk about both kinds. Number two, um, connected to the fact that it was based on race, the Atlantic slave system viewed slaves as subhuman property. It was called chattel slavery. The word chattel is also where we get the word cattle. Uh, basically, they're just animals that you own. And slaves had no rights as human beings. It was a deeply dehumanizing institution. And so as a result, it was one of the most brutal forms, it is the most brutal form of slavery in history. Um, also, I think the economic innovations that was going on at the time, um, you had these large plantations, sugar cultivation. Sugar cultivation was particularly intense. There would be um, periods where the harvesting and processing of sugar, slaves would work around the clock for two or three days without sleep. Um, they would work with machinery and their hands would often get caught. They would have to, uh, slave drivers would often carry a machete to, to hack off limbs. Um, and so it was, and then they were controlled by slave drivers, not their absentee owners who were far away living in England or France. And so the slave drivers were highly incentivized profit-wise to just drive their slaves. And so there was this deep disconnect between, in the relationship. In the ancient world, I have to say this. In the ancient world, it's a very complicated topic. There was wide variance in the practice of slavery. There were very brutal forms of slavery. For example, uh, slaves who were in the mines and the galley slaves. Um, these were often condemned criminals. Slaves, uh, women slaves were um, usually, they, they, um, they're the ones who um, were in the brothels. <coughs> but they were also much less brutal forms. Uh, slaves usually lived in the household, so they were 
Um, they lived with their masters. They were part of the family. Um, slaves often earned money. They often purchased or were given their freedom. They had Some slaves had high status, education. They rose to great prominence. Many slaves owned slaves themselves. That kind of uh, boggles our minds, but that's the paradigm. And so slavery, and slavery was not perpetual across generation. Um, and so this is not to say that slavery in the ancient world is okay, it's not unjust, um, but I think it's cl- the better analogy is to think of slavery in the ancient world as parallel or analogous to low-wage minimum hourly workers today. Um, that is also uh, uh, an unjust reality or unjust arrangement. But if I could think of, of, if we could think of slavery as two aspects, right? There were two aspects of slavery, and this is an important um, paradigm. So there was the economic arrangement of slavery. And then there was the um, the dehumanizing mistreatment element of slavery. Okay, and they're connected, <laughs> um, but we can separate the two. And there were cases where slavery was practiced in which the dehumanizing mistreatment of slaves was minimized or absent. And it was purely an economic arrangement. Um, we also have to remember that slavery and forms of slavery was universal in world history, um, even when they weren't called slaves. In fact, the word slave is, is, is a modern, world, w- modern word, but there were serfs, there were domestic servants who didn't receive pay, they just received room and board. Um, that, th- again, doesn't get the Bible off the hook, but it puts everything in perspective. Um, you have to remember that there has never been a civilization, a culture, a human society without slaves until the 19th century when uh, abolitionists, Christian abolitionists in Britain want to end the slavery. This is the first time in human history this had ever happened where slavery as an institution was ended and um, and and there's still slavery going on today. There's still modern slavery, but it's all underground. And, and it's not sanctioned. Nobody says slavery is good or okay. Um, and that's, that's an amazing innovation. We'll talk a little bit about that later. And so you have to remember that in the ancient world, it was inconceivable the world could exist without slavery. The strong eats the weak. As long as there's warfare and poverty, there would always be slaves. Okay. So um, any questions about the Atlantic slave system and what we're about to look at in the ancient world? All right, let's go on. So let's look at slavery in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has about a dozen passages about having slaves, and the argument I want to give to you today is that the Bible's regulation of slavery is an accommodation to the fallenness of man. Okay, so bear with me, hear out the argument, okay? Slavery is the result of injustice, poverty, and violence. But the Old Testament laws were designed to mitigate and regulate the practice so that its worst abuses um, is avoided. And I want to use the analogy of divorce. 
there's a passage I've included in uh, Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus and the Pharisees are in this heated pitched argument about divorce. And the Pharisees say, what do you think about divorce? And they cite Deuteronomy um, 24 verses 1 through 4 and they say the Old Testament has this regulation on divorce therefore divorce is good it's approved and what is Jesus' argument in verse 8 he responds he says it was because of the hardness of your heart Moses allowed you to divorce but from the beginning it was not so that argument the logic of that is very important because what is Jesus doing? He's going back to first principles in Genesis. In verse 4, he cites Genesis 2.28. And he's what is he saying? He's saying, at the beginning, marriage was designed to be unbreakable. But because of human sin and human fallenness, sometimes the evil of a marriage staying together is worse than the evil of it breaking apart. And therefore, divorce is permitted... But, he's, but if you read the Deuteronomy 24 passage, it is permitted in only one condition, in cases of infidelity. And when you have a divorce, there has to be due process. There has to be presentation of evidence and, and so forth. You can't just be, I don't like my spouse anymore. Uh, we have fights all the time. Um, and therefore, right, Genesis, not Deuteronomy, shows us God's intention for marriage and divorce. That's Jesus' argument. Now, therefore, let's apply the same logic to slavery. When it comes to slavery, it's not the later books of the Torah that tell us God's intention. It is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And here, let's read Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let me read it for you. Uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. That word is a very important word, the dominion of human beings. Kings, I mean, human beings were meant to be kings and queens, right? If you've read Narnia, son of Adam, uh, daughters of Eve, they're all kings and queens. There's this inerasable dignity to human beings. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, you know, this is the majesty, this is the dignity of human beings. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So human beings are in the image of God. They are sons and daughters of God, all human beings. They have an inerasable dignity and equality. And therefore, that is the first principle of what the Bible has to say. Slavery was not the way it was supposed to be. Slavery is an inherently degrading experience for human beings, and so it was not to, it was not supposed to be like that. The second word the Bible has on slavery, foundational, is the story of the Exodus. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So that's the, that's how the story of Israel begins. They're in bondage and slavery, and then God rescues them so that the story of salvation is the same story as the story of emancipation. And so that tells you what the Bible's position on slavery is. It's not a good thing. It's a terrible thing. They had to be rescued out of it. And in fact, that experience of the Exodus informs the Israelites' interactions from that point on with foreigners and with slaves. They always have to remember they were slaves. They were foreigners. Um, any questions on that? Those two basic foundational texts. 
Now we can go into the into the nitty gritty, right? Um, so let's read uh, Deuteronomy 15. Um, first, this describes there are two. There were two kinds of slavery in uh, uh, slavery in in Israel: debt slavery and conquest slaves. Um, I'll address them one at a time. Number one, debt slavery. So this is the passage. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Um, very similar um, regulations in Exodus and Leviticus. I, I put it the citations there as well. So, here's, here's what's going on. The ancient world did not have bankruptcy laws. So, when you experienced some kind of economic disaster... Um, in order to avoid starvation and death, you would borrow money. And if you could not climb out of poverty, out of that debt, you would go deeper and deeper into poverty and in debt until it reached a situation where it was just untenable. You couldn't live anymore. And in those situations, you can't just declare bankruptcy. What you do is you sell yourself, you sell your labor into slavery as a way to climb out of debt. Um... So this is the economic arrangement of slavery, okay? If we, if we say, oh, what a terrible situation. Oh, people were in such poverty that they were forced to just work and work and work. Well, there's something called wage slavery today, right? And so the economic situation is not that different today. But the important thing here is that you, is that it's voluntary. You decide this, you sell yourself. You can say it's involuntary because of poverty, but you know, um, in a sense, it's voluntary. The Bible mitigates this tragedy in two ways. Number one, it can only be for a limited time. Maximum six years. Every seventh year was called the, the year of Jubilee. No, not the year of Jubilee. Uh, it was called a sabbatical year. The seventh, seventh year is called the year of Jubilee. But uh, every seven years is called a sabbatical year, and all slaves were free. All debts were erased. So it limits the time. Number two, you have to have humane treatment for these slaves. God's people are to remember their time in Exodus. And so when a slave is set free, you have to not only just say, okay, your debt is released. You have to set him up for success in life. You have to give him uh, resources so that he can restart his life. Again, the Bible is not, this is not commanding slavery. This is not saying, yeah, get slaves. It's regulating slavery, but it's not an expression of approval. Does that make sense? It's mitigating the hardness, the fallenness of humanity because of poverty. Why is there poverty? Why are some people rich and some people poor? Part of the answer is human selfishness, right? What is the Bible's word on slavery? There are other regulations. Exodus 21, verse 16. Kidnapping is expressly forbidden. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So you couldn't just go and snatch someone, kidnap someone. This is repeated in Deuteronomy 24-7, and also it's repeated in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And so, what is this telling us? Forced slavery was forbidden. In other words, slavery had to be consensual. That sounds a little bit weird to us, 
But again, you have to remember the economic arrangement of slavery. Slavery had to be consensual. It had to be voluntary. And therefore, this the, the, the Old Testament therefore explicitly uh, and expressly prohibits and condemns the Atlantic slave system, which was absolutely mass scale based on kidnapping and stealing people. Um, any questions on debt slavery? All right, let's press forward. I'm, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm trying to go as fast as I can because there was, there's so much. Christina counseled me to cut things, and I'm like, I'm not going to cut anything. Um. <laughs> I have a quick question. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> Did you not hear what I just said? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, so, so you said that it has to be voluntary, right? But, yes. Um, what if someone owed you a debt? And and they they just refuse to pay you, like you know, even though they technically owe you a debt, and and they like try to run away or something like that. What would they do back in that case then? Like, uh, you can't force them into slavery. No, um, but I, I don't know the answer in a in a deep way. But you can't think of it as modern people, where like you could just ghost someone. People are living in villages. People are living, you know, you know, in rural communities. You can't just like abscond and disappear. You're deeply embedded in your community, and so you can't escape that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's go to the enslavement. What's called conquest slavery, enslavement of foreigners. Right. This is Deuteronomy chapter twenty. This is one of the favorite texts to be read by people who really find the morality of Christianity questionable. Um, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor. Um, so this is a slavery or a kind of slavery. This would be called tributary labor. Uh, they, it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the, and the little ones, the children, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Meaning, all the women and children become your slaves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. That you shall do to all the cities that are from that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here in Canaan, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, right? The promised land, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So, this is not that slavery of Israelites. This is slaves from conquest. So what do we say about that? And here, um, I wish we had more time to go into it, but you need to understand another concept, which is redemptive history. So what's going on here is a larger and bigger story. Um, you have to read it in light of God's story for Israel. Redemptive history. The, the history of salvation. The history of God redeeming His people. So when God commanded His people to conquer the promised land, the land of Canaan, He tells them to completely destroy everything alive inside of it. That sounds incredibly brutal. 
Um, but you have to remember that this is redemptive history. This is judgment day being brought forward in time in a limited space um, so that it's the judgment on evil and, and idolatry. And notice, even the animals have to be destroyed. So this is not your typical colonization, take all their good stuff, you know, enslave the people. The people are not to be enslaved. No one is to be left alive. Even the animals are to be killed because this is not for personal profit. This is the judgment of God. Likewise, in the land of Israel, they're playing out this story of redemptive history. And what is the story of history, of redemptive history? What is God doing? Uh, uh, in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity fell, sin spread over all the earth. And in Abraham, God, starting with this family, is bringing salvation, right? It's heaven and earth kissing in the family of Abraham and then in the land of Israel. And so Israel is mandated to rule the nations. As uh, the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. That's the mandate of Israel. And so I, I and so I wish I wished this could take a full hour to really expand. But let me just give you one passage, Psalm two. It's talking about the Davidic king, how he will rule the nations. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with trembling and rejoice, with fear and rejoice with trembling. So if the nations will not gladly submit, then the Davidic king will break them with a rod of iron. And so enslavement here is an expression of the dominion and the rule of the king. This is not exploitative slavery for personal profit, but this is an expression of uh, the Davidic king who is a prefigurement of Christ. It's the Davidic king ruling over the nations, showing his dominion. Um, any quick questions on that? All right. There's, there's, there's Leviticus 25, but for the sake of time, I'm not, I'm gonna skip it, but I'm gonna talk about it just a little bit. It says that the slavery of foreigners is perpetual. If you remember, the regulation for Israelite debt slavery is time limited six years. But, but slavery of foreigners, there was no time limit. It was perpetual all through their life. I want you to know that this is also an expression of Israel's mandate to rule the nations. And you also have to remember, when foreigners were enslaved for life, that doesn't absolve the Israelites from treating the foreigners well. So there's, I just listed two passages, but there's all kinds of verses that constantly say, love the alien, love the, the, the refugee, love the foreigner. Uh, let me just read you Leviticus 19. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. And so, this element, the dehumanizing mistreatment element of slavery, Israel was not allowed to perpetuate or practice. Only the economic arrangement for debt slaves, and then in terms of foreign slavery, this is again, um, dominion, but, but they have to remember at all times, slaves are in the Imago Dei, you're supposed to treat them with dignity and respect. Alright. Any questions? Yes. So the first paragraph of Deuteronomy 20, uh, it's more of an expression and symbolism of, as you said, the Davidic king ruling, and then us as his people kind of enjoying his rulership and his authority. Right. The, the, the foreign peoples have two choices. They can submit to the Lord, 
and become one and graft it into the people of God. So you see that, for example, with Rahab, with Ruth. Um, Gibeonites is a good example of this. The Gibeonites is a foreign people, but they, they come and they cling to, to the Lord. Um, or they fight. It's this cosmic war between the seed of, of, of the, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of, of the serpent. There's this perpetual fight. And so Israel is to, is to demonstrate its dominion by enslaving the foreigners. This only happened, by the way, under two kings, David and Solomon, because Israel was mostly this besieged kingdom, right? All right, let's go to the New Testament. Here, here, redemptive history goes on, but redemptive history doesn't apply anymore because this, the, all the regulations of slavery apply to the nation of Israel. So this is no longer theocratic Israel. Theocratic Israel. This is Greco-Roman, Mediterranean ancient world. What does the Bible have to say about that slavery? So let me read you Ephesians chapter 6. These are, th- these are called the household co- codes. There are a total of five household codes in the New Testament where um, various members of the church are addressed. You know, parents, what should you do? Children, what should you do? Men, husbands, what should you do? Wives, what, you, what should you do? And it addresses, like in any Greco-Roman household, there were s- slaves. It addresses slaves and addresses slave masters. Listen to this. Bond servants. Um, this is a translational issue. Uh, the Greek word there is doulos. Again, the word slave, which comes from the word slav, which comes from the modern practice of slavery, is kind of a modern concept. So they use bond, the word bond servants, meaning these are servants that are bonded. They don't have freedom of movement. Um, they can't just say, I quit. <laughs> There's no quitting if you're a bond servant. Um, but anyways, verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. That's a very important phrase there. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. And then verse 9, masters. Do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So again, there are four other passages that says very similar things. So do these New Testament passages support and approve of slavery? By the way, uh, in the American South, slave owners would often read these passages to their slaves as, a, as an apologetic, as an argument to sustain slavery. So does it support slavery? And so here's the answer. You have to think about the basic biblical message to Christians, which is to bear injustice, injustice that happens to them with patience and joy. And therefore, the instruction to Christian slaves is not to run away, it's not to foment rebellion, but to work to the best of their ability and to know that ultimately they're not serving their slave master, whether he's a kind or unjust slave master, they're ultimately serving their Lord, their, their ultimate heavenly master. And so the chief motivation for their life should not be to obtain personal freedom, but their chief guiding principle in life is the glory of God, to live for Him, and to please and honor Him by doing a good job in their station in life. Similarly, slave masters are instructed to treat their their slaves humanely. Again, the Bible is condoning and regulating the economic arrangement of slavery, but it is not at all sanctioning the dehumanizing mistreatment of slaves. 
And it's important that slave masters are to do the same to them. They're to treat them just as a reciprocal relationship. Colossians uh, 4.1 says this, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so masters are not to be abusive. They're not to use threats of violence. They're supposed to treat their slaves with respect, justice, and equality. And they have to always remember Christ is ultimately their master. And just as Christ treats them, they are to treat others. So think about how Christ is a master. He's not abusive, right? But he's our Lord. He's our sovereign. And so in the same way, Christian uh, Christian slave masters are, are to have the same attitude. And if you think of it like that, it radically transforms the master-slave relationship to one of mutual respect and love. There's an economic relationship, but then I would say it is also replicated in the modern world. We don't live in a perfectly flat, equal society. There are rich people and there are poor people. There are people who are your supervisors at work, and there are people who are you know, underlings or subordinates. What is that relationship supposed to look like? Right? You, you should listen. You should obey. You should do what your supervisor tells you. But likewise, the supervisor, if you're a Christian supervisor, you have people who are under you, you're supposed to treat them with dignity and respect and love. And again, remember, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, also, it's in Revelation 18, um, 11 through 13, it, it, it absolutely forbids slave trading and kidnapping. So non-consensual slavery is condemned. Let me read you one more passage, 1 Corinthians 7. How are we doing? Oh, I feel really good. Okay. <laughs> All right, 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then listen to verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if, this is important, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has, who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freeman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him, there, there, let him remain with the Lord, with God. Alright, so what is Paul telling us here? He's telling us that rather than living a life of discontent, Christians are to live for Christ. The highest goal in life is not your personal advancement, it's not personal ambition, but it's to live for Him. You are ultimately a slave of Christ. You're, you're, you're to do service to Christ. And I think the key verse is verse 21. Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. What is he saying? He's saying it's good to be free. He's not advocating for slavery. He's saying personal freedom is a good thing. If the opportunity opens itself to you, go ahead and absolutely take it. Don't stay a slave. He's saying it's a good thing, but what he's saying here is it's not the ultimate thing. Christ is ultimate. And so that relativizes all the other conditions and situations of your life. Um, any questions on that, those New Testament texts, before we go to um, Philemon? All right, Philemon. This is the ultimate answer to slavery in the Bible. And I, I think Philemon is so important. If we did not have Philemon, I think 
we'd have a huge gap in helping us to understand what is the Bible saying about slavery. It's an incredibly valuable, important letter. So here's the backstory. Onesimus is a Christian slave owner. Paul personally converted him. And what happens is his slave, Philemon, who was not a Christian, not a believer, he runs away from his slave master. And he apparently also stole quite a bit of money and did some wrong, uh, perpetuated wrong to his slave master. He runs all the way to Paul, who is in prison in, um, in Rome. And through Paul's, through a relationship with Paul, ministry with Paul, he becomes a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. And he becomes incredibly valuable to Paul. Um, he's mentioned in another letter, I can't remember uh, which one, but Paul speaks of, of Onesimus with deep affection. Philemon is just so precious to him. But, even though he's so precious to him, Paul is more interested in the gospel, um, the gospel being played out in this relationship, and for there to be reconciliation. And so he sends Philemon back home to his sl- former slave master. And he Yes. Do I mix them up? Yes. Um, so he sends Onesimus back home to Philemon, and he writes this really deeply personal letter. And so Onesimus is carrying home the letter, and it's addressed to Philemon, his wife, and his, his uh, son, and to the church that meets at Philemon's house. And so they're reading this letter with Philemon stand, with Onesimus standing there. And so th- let me read you a portion of, of the passage. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yeah, he doesn't come right out and say, I'm going to tell you what to do. Okay? He's, he's trying to win Philemon. He's trying to woo him. He said, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would not, I, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No, this is the important verse, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me, as an apostle. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you, of your owing owing me even your your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So what is Paul doing here? He's applying the gospel to the master-slave relationship. And his argument here is that the gospel transforms our relationships from one of selfish interest, trying to do cost-benefit analysis, take, 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 
to one of self-giving love. And verse 16 is key. Onesimus is no longer a slave to Philemon, but he is now a brother in Christ. And so that's the ultimate paradigm. The world says there are masters and there are slaves. Masters oppress their slaves. But the gospel says that in the church, there are only brothers, loving brothers. Right? That's the new paradigm relationship. And Paul, notice, doesn't command Philemon to do this. In fact, this is the only letter of Paul where he says, he doesn't start by saying, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord. He doesn't pull rank. Right? He's appealing to Philemon to release Onesimus, but he doesn't want begrudging compliance. He wants a heart that is transformed by the gospel. He wants Philemon to work through the implications of the gospel in his relationship with Onesimus. And what does that mean? It ultimately means freedom and release, right? So that's the final word of the Bible. Um, In the body of Christ, all the old distinctions and power hierarchies don't matter anymore. There are no slave masters. There are no slaves in the kingdom of God. Listen to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, but for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here's the conclusion. The gospel of, the logic of the gospel makes slavery impossible. In fact, the early Christians were the very first people in world history to advocate for the end of slavery. Gregory, we have a a letter written by Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century arguing for the end of slavery in the Roman Empire. And then, in the 1800s and the uh, uh, in the in the 1800s and in the um, late 1700s, evangelical Christians who were reading their Bible, who were stu- steadily studying the Bible, and I just read uh, the biography of William Wilberforce, right, who led the uh, the the fight for abolition in in Britain uh, for the end of slavery. They're reading their Bible and they realize the institution of slavery as it was practiced then is absolutely evil. And against all the economic interests, all the powerful industrial forces that said, no, 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 we need this, we need this for our empire, they fought for the freedom of slaves. And then you look at throughout Christian history, uh, throughout the history of, uh, of the West, for example, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he fought for racial justice, citing the Bible. He doesn't say, you know, ignore the Bible, it's, re- it's this regressive ethical document. No, he's citing the Bible. And in fact, if you read, for example, a letter to, uh, from Birmingham jail, he's writing to um, white Christians, white Christian supremacists, and he's not saying ignore your Bible, he's saying you need to read your Bible a little bit more carefully, more closely. Right? He's saying we need more Bible, not less Bible, to bring us to racial equality, racial justice. So that's the Bible's two words on slavery. It's two passages. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. All human beings are made in the image of God. And the second word on uh, on slavery is Philemon. Chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. The gospel transforms slaves into brothers. So that's the answer. Um, Any questions? Let's see how we're doing in time. Okay, we have like maybe 10 minutes, 5 to 10 minutes for questions. Yes. So I think you mentioned in your announcement for this class you were saying the Bible is wrong on slavery. No. No. I'm saying critics say the Bible is wrong. Oh, okay. So you're saying from a critic's perspective. Yes. Okay. 
Never mind then. I, I had thought you were saying that about the Bible. Yeah, that distinction is pretty critical. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, it changes your it changes your hearing of the whole class. Yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> not. I was curious. <laughs> any, any other question? So, I'm, so what I'm saying is what the Bible says on slavery is the very word of God, right. transcendent and true for all time today as well. So let's say uh, there are Christians in a country that did have slavery and it was under an economic arrangement. What do you think a Christian should do in that case? Like, uh, I'm a Christian and then I'm a slave or bondservant uh, and the laws allow for that don't really allow me to um, not do that. Yeah, so should a Christian, for example, go in there and like foment revolution, right? And try to emancipate the slaves from that situation. I think the Bible is always constantly pressing and challenging every culture and rebuking every culture. And so, inevitably, I think you can't separate these two things. They're inherently linked. So there will be mistreatment and dehumanization. Um, and so as a believer, you're fighting against that. You're, 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 um, you're you're preaching against it, and you're and you're you're trying you're agitating against that, right? Um, and so ultimately, I think it's going to lead you to to speak out against slavery. But I think similarly in our own society, in our own culture, this is the argument I've been trying to make. I think the modern world is not absolutely free from slavery. We absolutely have wide economic disparity, and that that arrangement isn't completely. Um, unconstrained in terms of people are free to do whatever they want, right? Um, people are burdened down with debt. They're trapped in a debt cycle. Um, there's all kinds of unjust economic arrangements. And so similarly, we can preach against that. And, and if you're in a position of power, if you're in a position of authority, or, or if you're a supervisor of others who are subordinates to you, you need to treat them with dignity and respect and with justice and how you would want to be treated. You need to think of everyone as an image of God. And so if somebody is being mistreated, that doctrine is, paradi- is, the, is the paramount paradigm. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone's a king and queen. You know, they have dominion over the earth. So I don't know if that answers your question. But yeah, I think like you always contextualize. Right? So you come into a situation. If you see non-consensual slavery, that ab- the Bible absolutely condemns it. A lot of slavery right now is uh, sex-based slavery, right? women being forced into prostitution, that is absolutely antithetical to the teachings of the Bible. So we would absolutely fight against that. So I can't really conceive of modern slavery today as fitting anywhere within, you know, what might be countenanced by the Bible. Any any quick any more questions? Yeah. Um, so kind of looking at Exodus twenty one, this page of twenty one and reading on the day. Yeah. For slavery is forbidden, but then in Deuteronomy 20 it says uh, then people not in it shall do forced labor. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing Deuteronomy 20 is justified because... Forced slavery is forbidden for brothers, for fellow Israelites. Forced slavery is permitted for those people, the pagans, outside of Israel. Like people who are conquering... That's right. And, and the argument that I was trying to make is that is a function of the mandate given to the king of Israel right. to rule the nations. Right. That has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Right. He will rule the nations. Every knee will bow. But now we, as his followers, that's not our mandate anymore. So 
so Exodus 21 is in the context of, you know, within the land of Israel, right? That's right. Okay, gotcha. And so did people in the past use Deuteronomy? Uh, you said that they used Deuteronomy 20 to justify slavery. Again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of superficial readings of the Bible that support slavery. And so slave masters, the American South, they completely used many passages. They would just read them without understanding the story more deeply. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Dorothy. Um, so several times you compare the economic arrangement of slavery to the modern, like, low-wage, low-skilled workers that are oppressed by their economic situation. Do you feel like there's any, or what are the practical implications of these passages on our daily lives now um, as we encounter workers um, that are paid minimum wage at yeah, I think there's like two horizons the Bible is always thinking about. There's your own personal situation and there's a larger societal situation. In your own personal situation, your highest goal is not personal advancement. So if you're in a, if you're an oppressed low wage worker, you, you know, you're not supposed to like bring the system down and start a revolution. I don't think any of us in here, or most of us in here are not oppressed low wage workers. So I'm saying as like, yeah, so again, with financial ability as we are encountering. Yeah. So if you're in a situation where you're the supervisor, you're the employer, again, you know, you, to be able to bring the system down and completely transform it requires a lot of work. William Wilberforce, for example, to end institutional slavery in Britain, it took him 30 years, and he was one of the highest-ranked parliamentary members. I'm and so, sorry, I'm talking about me personally. So I, I know, I, I'm actually answering your question. I'm just taking a long time to get there. Yeah, but enjoy the journey, right, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so, 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 can we, can we, can we, can we, we have to have measured modest expectations for changing the system. But in our own personal behavior, in our own personal life, even as we're in this economic arrangement, right, we're the supervisor, someone is below us, we have authority over them, we must not mistreat them, we must treat them with dignity and equality and, and love. While maintaining, while, I mean, while within this system, that might be judged as an injustice. Maybe a hundred years from now, people will be like, "What the heck happened in the 21st century in America? Such an evil system!" And and why, why didn't the Christians do anything? Well, I'm sorry, I must be asking the question wrong. Okay. Um, when I choose to spend my money at like Walmart, for example, yeah. am I perpetuating a an unjust economic arrangement, knowing that the checker at Walmart is being paid like? So my answer is it's super complicated. It's hard to say. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So I think as Christians, when we think about the larger societal injustices, systemic injustices, we need to act thoughtfully and think through it. There's a lot of complicated strands. But in our own personal conduct, right, when we have subordinates under us, we treat them, you know, we don't... Like, for example, the way Steve Jobs treated his subordinates, that would be anathema to Scripture. You know, he would just humiliate them, shame them, mistreat them. <laughs> we- um, so, I'm kind of curious, it's sort of related. I'm curious about your thoughts about why God allows his own people to go through slavery. Mm. In my head, I'm like, well, maybe he's trying to show us a bigger picture that we are slaves to sin. He's 
business freedom, but in that moment, yeah, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, multiple generations of toiling, mm-hmm. horrible slavery. God had a beautiful, good reason for it. Um, and we'll just have to leave it at that because the class class time. Yeah. Um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, this is definitely a, a challenging topic. Um, and we want to love your word. We want to think deeply through your word. Help us to have understanding and clarity and to see that you are all wise, that every culture is broken, every society has um, elements of, of injustice and evil. And help us as Christians today not to be captives of our culture, but to see with the eyes of Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.